and welcome to the 15th Womanthology podcast. My name is Fiona Tatton and I'll be your host. Womanthology is a digital magazine and professional community powered by female energy and ingenuity. We champion equal recognition and reward for everyone, sharing opportunities, ideas and a deep pool of collective wisdom, supporting each other to be unstoppable. The theme of the show today is International Women's Day. I'm going to be talking with Caroline Noakes MP about her work as chair of the House of Commons Women and Equalities Select Committee, the recent report published into the gendered economic impact of coronavirus and the announcement that gender pay gap reporting enforcement is to be reinstated. We'll also be hearing from Inesh Santos, Womanthology's associate editor, who is going to be talking us through the written stories in the new issue. A quick reminder that you sign up for the Womanthology newsletter by filling in your details on the front page of our website, womanthology.co.uk. You can also join our new LinkedIn community by visiting linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash womanthology and also find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Welcome to the Womanthology podcast, Caroline Noakes, MP, Chair of the House of Commons Women and Equalities Select Committee. How are you doing, Caroline? Yeah, good, thank you. I mean, as everybody else, struggling with lockdown, but the end is now in sight. So that makes everyone, I think, feel a bit more positive, doesn't it? It's, it's all going in the right direction. So we've just got to keep it going in the right direction. So, um, Caroline, please could you tell us about your educational background and career to date? Gosh, uh, and the worry is that I'll spend all of my time talking about this. So I um, I was, grew up and was educated in Romsey, the constituency I now represent, which I always think is a massive asset. Uh, people always say to me, you know, how do you, how do you understand the thoughts and views of your constituents? And I say, well, I'm one of them, aren't I? And, you know, this to me is home. And I think that helps massively. I, um, at 16, went to the local sixth form college, Peter Simmons in Winchester, where I did A-levels in economics, history and English. And because I was busy failing A-level economics, picked up politics as an evening class, uh, which I really enjoyed, found fascinating, and read politics at university as a result um, at the University of Sussex, not known for producing uh, Tory parliamentarians, although uh, currently in the House there's me and Kemi Badnock, who both went there, and and didn't really know what I wanted to do with my degree when I left university, um, uh, which absolutely coincided with the start of the European election campaign of 1994. I got the year badly wrong there, didn't I? Just watched 10 years off my age. Um, And my dad was a candidate in that election, and I went and helped him on his election campaign. And as an unemployed politics graduate, when he was elected to the European Parliament in 1994, I went and worked for him for 10 years. Um, and uh, you know, just got bitten by the politics bug, and it's very addictive. Um, and became a local councillor in 1999. Stood in the general election of 01 uh, unsuccessfully in the rock solid then Labour seat of Southampton Itchen. It's now a Tory seat with a really respectable majority. And in uh, 2002, was selected to fight the Romsey seat, uh, which the Conservatives had lost in a by-election and uh, eventually won the seat in 2010. And uh, so now approaching my 11th anniversary of being in Parliament. Wonderful. Congratulations. And I read, did I read that you are supposed to be one of the most responsive MPs to queries, I think? Um, So I, I really pride myself on that. And in 2005, when I didn't win the general election um, by 125 votes, I always say to people, I would have much rather 
that the margin of error had been, you know, 1,200 votes, because you would then be able to look at yourself and say, I could have done nothing more as an individual. But to lose by 125, there was nobody to blame for that but me. Um, and I then dedicated myself to spending the next five years working as hard as I possibly could to make sure that I wouldn't lose again. Uh, I don't like losing. And um, so once elected in 2010, it became my absolute mission to, to take that ethos of hard work and to be as responsive as I could to my constituents, to make sure that I responded to emails as fast as possible, as thoroughly as possible. Um, and I think it, it stood me in very good stead. Romsey was a very marginal seat between uh, 2010 and 2015. I had a majority of just over 4,000, um, which in the grand scheme of things is tiny, uh, and was rewarded with a, a thumping great majority in 2015 of, I think that was about 17,000 in 2017. That went up to 18,000. So, you know, I, and I always say that to colleagues and say, what's the secret? And I tell them that you... Uh, you get involved in community issues, you uh, make sure that you support local events, you respond to your constituents as quickly as you can, work damn hard, work seven days a week. Um, and I still do now. Uh, I will definitely be answering emails um, seven days a week, no doubt about that. Um, and, you know, I have momentary aberrations. I always remember sitting in bed on Christmas Day one year, uh, responding to a constituent about bats. And as well as being an MP, you are also chair of the House of Commons Women and Equalities Select Committee. For those people who don't know that much about it, could you give us a bit of an overview about what the role as chair involves? Well, the job of the committee is uh, to scrutinise the work of the Government Equalities Office and to hold uh, the Minister for Women and Equalities to account. Um, and I... I I'm going to use the term Lucy. I was elected to the role, except it was a bit of a um, North Korean style election because there were no other candidates. It's about a year's anniversary that I've been doing the job. And Maria Miller, so the committee was only set up in 2015. It was a new committee. Maria Miller was chair of the committee from 2015 onwards. So you know, the, the first chair of the first ever Women and Equalities Select Committee in Parliament. Um, and Maria decided to stand down. And uh, we had a conversation sort of January last year where Maria said she was going to stand down. I, um, I'd i been a minister for three years, but uh, that came to an end in summer 2019. And I was sort of looking for a role that I would find interesting, something I could be passionate about within Parliament. And I thought, well, why not? Um, this could be something that I can really get my teeth into. And I, can, I discussed it with lots of colleagues. Uh, and I re remember one of them said to me, oh, well, the problem with women inequalities, it's so narrow. It's far too narrow and you'll, you'll get bored doing that. And whilst talking to this colleague, I suddenly started explaining how this wasn't a narrow role at all and that there was, it wasn't just women, it was equalities as well. And therefore, there was no part of government policy that I couldn't go poking my nose into. And it's a, you know, it's a huge cross-cutting agenda. And over the course of um, the last 12 months, we've looked at uh, the gendered impact of COVID, the impact on disabled people, the impact on BAME communities. We've done an inquiry into uh, body image and the concerns of young people. We're currently working on a joint inquiry with the Petitions Committee on uh, the Black Curriculum and the, the role that Black Lives Matter has had in really bringing that to the top of the political agenda. And so it's really, it's really broad um, and, and that suits me. It gives me a, a lot of different issues that I can really get involved in. And I have to say, I've got a, a great committee um, who I think all of them bar one were newly elected in 2019. So that's given them uh, an opportunity to really get stuck into some of the COVID issues um, whilst learning how to work remotely. 
which is a challenge for everybody. Um, and particularly when you're new MP, you might not have had your staff or your offices set up uh, or particularly, you know, they won't have come together and gelled uh, that quickly. And then we were all sent off to the four corners of the country. And there's a member of the committee from Scotland, one from Wales, uh, some from the Northeast, Midlands, me in the Southeast. So, you know, we're a broad range across the whole country. And um, it's been a really interesting and worthwhile first year. And the committee has been investigating, as you mentioned, into the gendered economic impact of coronavirus. Could you talk us through the research that's been conducted in the process? Well, we uh, so the process for any select committee inquiry is that you invite written evidence um, and you also invite witnesses in to talk to the committee about what they've seen over the course of the pandemic. So we took uh, evidence from organisations as varied as the TUC, the Women's Budget Group, um, lots of academics, and investigated what impact COVID had had on women's employment prospects. We had a lot of evidence around maternity discrimination and pregnant women being put onto statutory sick pay instead of maternity leave or not furloughed and put onto maternity leave instead of that. Um, we had a massive, massive amount of evidence about uh, women being more likely to be furloughed than their male colleagues because they were working in sectors which were shut down. So hospitality and retail being uh, two really prime ones. And so it was a long inquiry. Um, and when we when we started the inquiry onto the impact of COVID, it very quickly developed into the three strands that I've highlighted. But the, the gendered impact was by far and away the largest and the most significant. So we came up with uh, 20 recommendations for government about a whole range of issues um, from universal credit and conditionality and asking the DWP to be uh, more flexible about conditionality for women who had recently fallen out of work, be made redundant because of COVID and their route back into work, um, the need for childcare that they might have, even though they're not in work, because actually looking for a job is incredibly time consuming. And we know that up until uh, next week, children aren't in school yet. Um, and we came up with some recommendations about the gender pay gap and the reinstatement of the enforcement of reporting on that, about uh, training and retraining for women, because we know that they're in sectors that are going to look very different after the pandemic. Retail, for example, um, the high street has been clobbered enormously. And we know that Masses of jobs have gone in the Arcadia group. We have John Lewis. I mean, that real bastion of the high street shutting shops and shutting an enormous number of shops. Boots lost uh, a huge number of jobs as well. And it's really obvious that retail is going to be very different. Now, that's a sector that employs 58% women. So uh, what we're calling on the DWB and the Chancellor to do is to reflect that. And there's some great programmes, the Kickstart Scheme, apprenticeships, the commitment to uh, enable people who haven't finished their A-levels, for example, but that tertiary level of education to enable them at any age to go back and do those two years of further study. And actually, there'll be a lot of women employed in retail who left school at 16, have worked in retail for 20, 25 years. Now, I would always describe them as women absolutely in the prime of their lives. Not surprising because they're broadly speaking my age, um, but they may not have ever done A-levels. And I want us to make sure that that opportunity to go back and study isn't lost to them and isn't all taken up by sort of 22-year-old lads who've suddenly lost a job in, in whatever sector. And um, so we have to make sure that women get their, get their fair share of that, that opportunity. 
Uh-huh. Absolutely. And one of the recommendations was that uh, you mentioned was that gender pay gap reporting was reinstated and, and that happened. So could, could you tell us about that? So an, an absolute triumph. Um, and the reality is, uh, and I sometimes I'm very lazy in the way I describe things. So um, gender pay gap reporting was not suspended. It was the enforcement that was suspended. Now, what we saw very clearly um, and I've, I'm not going to give you the precise stats because I forget them, but I raised this in the House a couple of weeks ago with Liz Truss, is that where there was no enforcement, the number of companies that were reporting fell off a cliff. And I think at this stage this year, we have only seen about a third of the number of companies report as we had at this stage last year. Well, that, you know, a, a drop of two thirds is uh, huge. And I was feeling very anxious that the gender pay gap reporting enforcement thereof, suspension, um, would, would linger. Um, now, the reality is, is that enforcement will come back in from October. I think it sends a very clear message to companies, look, it, it's not enough that you reported in 2019, 2020, you have to keep doing it consistently. And by shining that light on the behaviour of companies, it does uh, oblige them to actually look at their recruitment practices, to look at what they're paying their staff and to think about whether there is a disparity between what they're paying men and women. And we've seen, even through the pandemic, some really great strides made in all sorts of areas. So if you look at the Hampton Alexander Review, which reported last week, that showed that there are now no, zero, none, uh, FTSE 350 companies that don't have a single woman on their board. Now, I always send the message, well, that's marvellous, brilliant. But one and done. No, I don't think so. It's not enough to say, well, we've got a woman on our board, so we are, are, you know, our duty here is finished. But they hit the target of 33% of women on boards and exceeded it, which uh, for some of us, that was a real surprise. I mean, a welcome surprise. But there's always, there's always much further to go. And I always say to people, look, that, that's a snapshot of now. And you can't pat yourself on the back and go, right, job done. There's always further to go. Let's get a 50-50. Let's make sure that the gender pay gap is zero. Let's continue making progress. Um, and I think the pandemic, um, and maybe I'm a born optimist, but I think it gives us opportunities to, to look at what we've learned over the course of the last year. We've all learned men as well as, well as women can work flexibly. We can work more from home. We will be just as productive working from home because guess what? You're going to cut out that commute every single day. And I think there are all sorts of questions about work-life balance. And it's really important that you don't find yourself living at work as opposed to working from home. But I think it does give us kind of a bit of a, an impetus towards let's look at the world of work and let's, let's forget presenteeism as being kind of the goal and let's look at productivity and let's work out how we can do everything going forward in a more, uh, more flexible and cleverer way. And in terms of reporting, uh, would you say that broader reporting, that's been discussed is that something that you would approve of yeah i'm quite uh quite passionate about let's drill down into our employment statistics let's drill down into who's earning what where how why i think and i think the why is a really big question so i've called for ethnicity pay gap reporting there's some murmurings and you know this has a bit of traction um and i hope that we can see that introduced because i think what the pandemic has shown us really starkly is that there are ongoing inequalities and structural um, problems with employment and people 
for example, people from Black, Asian, minority ethnic backgrounds much more likely to be in low-paid, insecure employment, much more likely to be in uh, customer-facing roles as well. So that, when the pandemic came, put them in at much more risk. Uh, so whether it was in transport or in social care, you were seeing uh, BAME people, A, more likely to catch COVID, B, more likely to have uh, serious health implications because of it, because they were living in overcrowded, poor quality housing. And um, it really, really struck home to me that we need to make sure that when we talk about levelling up, it's not just about this great north-south divide because there are pockets of deprivation in London. Now, nobody ever looks at London and says, oh, well, we need to level up London or we need to level up the southeast. But the reality is, is that you could have some of the most deprived communities living uh, absolutely next door to some of the most affluent ones, whether educational outcomes would be much worse, whether health outcomes would be much worse, the employment outcomes. And so we have to be much more granular about the way we look at uh, about the way we look at um, socioeconomic inequality and work out, not just talk about it, not just uh, continually measure it, but work out what we can do about it. I suppose there is that what, what gets measured gets done, but then it's, it's then what you do with the measurements. Absolutely. And uh, Theresa May in 2017 commissioned the race disparity audit. Um, absolutely crucial that we had the audit to shine a light on where those disparities were, but it's 2021 now. Um, and it's time for some action. So um, moving on to International Women's Day. Uh, so it's coming up. What does it mean to you and why is it so important for us to celebrate it? So we absolutely have to celebrate the day. Uh, and um, for me, it becomes a bit more of a week slash fortnight than a single day. And I like what is good as well as bad. And I can remember speaking in last year's International Women's Day debate in Parliament um, and quoting from Charles Dickens, I think, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, because actually then we were celebrating that we had done much better in female representation in Parliament. And, and that's something to really rejoice, that we are edging those numbers up slowly, but, you know, we're getting there. And I'm absolutely committed to a 50-50 Parliament. We have to do more to encourage women to stand in elections. We have to do more to help them once they've been selected as candidates to actually win those seats. And the, the reality is, is that if you're a female candidate, you're much more likely to be selected to fight a marginal seat than a safe seat. So, you know, we have to make sure that we get women into good winnable seats as well as just enabling them to stand and encouraging them to stand. And when I said it was the worst of times, I was really lamenting the fact that we had lost a whole raft of brilliant MPs at the last election from all parties. And I, you know, I'm always going to highlight people like Amber Rudd and Claire Perry, Seema Kennedy, uh, Nikki Morgan, who all chose to stand down for a, a variety of reasons. But also on the Labour side, um, we lost people like Gloria De Piero, who chose to stand down. But also um, a lot of Labour women lost their seats altogether. And people like Caroline Flint, people like uh, Emma Reynolds in Wolverhampton, you know, these were people who I had really enjoyed working with across Parliament uh, over the previous decade. And, and they were gone. And to me, that felt very sad. Now, uh, gosh, when I spoke literally 12 months ago about saying it was the worst of times, I didn't know what was coming, did I? Um, because I think for women generally, for female parliamentarians, for mums, uh, those people who have been struggling through the pandemic with partners not able to come to their prenatal scans, 
um, it, mothers who have been homeschooling, working from home, juggling the childcare, you know, doing all the housework, trying to work out when you can get a supermarket delivery or going and standing, as I did uh, on many a sunny morning this time last year outside Tesco's in the interminable queues. It was a really, it has been, it still is a really difficult 12-month period. And so this year for International Women's Day, I think it's absolutely right that when I speak in Parliament, and we will have a debate on the 11th of March, that I focus on how hard it has been for women over the last 12 months, but also look to the future and say, well, actually, what are we going to do better? What can we take from this pandemic to improve the lives of women? What can we do to make sure that their employment opportunities are um, are not diminished. And we went into the pandemic with female employment at a record level. So getting back to that is, is going to be a tall order. I don't, uh, I don't underestimate that at all. But, you know, what are we doing to help women previously uh, employed in retail? What are we help doing to help the hair and beauty sector get back on its feet? Uh, because they play such a crucial role, not only uh, in making us all look a bit better, but actually about making us feel better internally and combating loneliness, the wider well-being agenda. And, you know, I've learned so much over the course of the last 12 months about, you know, Ayurvedic facials that can deal with your migraines or uh, the role that the sector plays in combating loneliness and, and isolation and helping older people um, you know, get out of their houses more. And, and what are we going to do to help those uh, older women who have lost all of those social contacts over the last 12 months? Um, and how can we stimulate them to getting back out into society now that they've, uh, and I'm going to say it for the over 80s, probably the over 75s, now that they've, broadly speaking, all been vaccinated, we have to work out how we can give those people back the confidence to, to make those everyday journeys onto the high street, to use their local cafe, to pop to the hairdressers, because um, women have had it tough over the last 12 months. And I think it's crucially important that we work out strategies to, um, to help them get back on their feet. Absolutely. And do you think it's looking at things slightly differently as well and, and being creative and having lots of different ideas and trying different things out as well? Oh, so absolutely. And I think it's crucially important. Uh, and I always, always talk, and maybe this is because of my job, uh, but I always say I am a problem solver. So people will give me problems that appear completely insurmountable. And, um, and you know, there's two ways to tackle things. You either go at it head on or you sit there and you strategize and go, Hmm. Well, maybe if we were to do this differently, maybe if we come round from the side, instead of smacking straight on head on into this, we're going to achieve what we want to achieve. Um, and I think that particularly in the world of politics, women give a new perspective. They give a different perspective. And I always say that. And, you know, there's been a bit of flack thrown at me for being so outspoken on this. But in the first lockdown, we saw formal childcare closed and we saw informal childcare banned. Now, what on earth did that do? for the single mum who worked in retail, who had to go out to work every single day with a you know, preschool age child, and suddenly she can't use her childminder. The babysitting service of mum and dad is uh, effectively banned. And yet she's got to go and sit on that checkout for eight hours at a time. Um, and I was absolutely convinced that that decision came about to ban informal childcare because there was nobody sat around that cabinet table who's going, uh, hang on, you've just shut my childminder. What the hell am I going to do? And um, I felt very strongly that women's voices weren't being heard enough. So I was really pleased in the second lockdown that childcare remained open and that uh, childcare bubbles were 
allowed. But I couldn't help but feel, do you know, we need we need women who are thinking about the implications of uh, policies on them. And we need them to be speaking out and we need them sat around the cabinet table. We need them to be in the quad making those crucial decisions. You know, when the prime minister was very sadly in hospital, we had a situation where the quad was all male. Um, and, do you know, 21st century Britain needs to remember that 51% of the population is female. And, and I know that there are some hideous stereotypes and I've alluded to them earlier on about women doing the childcare, women doing the housework, women doing the shopping, women doing the homeschooling whilst working from home. Um, but that was the reality. We fell straight back into a sort of 1970s way of life that to me was completely alien. Um, and I was just sort of tearing my hair out going, why have we made this fundamental error in not recognising the crucial importance of childcare to enable women to go out to work? Dr. Duncan Brown, who is a wonderful um, associate of of mine with Womanthology, took part in the research about the gendered economic impact. So please do use us and ask our our audience as well. So we've got listeners, we've got readers as well. But if there is ever anything that we can help with, our audience has loads of amazing ideas. So, and I'm always struck by that, is that women can provide me with the most obvious solutions and are, are never afraid of getting in touch. And I always say, you wouldn't have thought that two of my most useful resources when wanting to get hold of stats or uh, evidence or anecdote or real life stories, it's always the TUC and Mumsnet. Um, and people sort of look at me, Mumsnet, you are quoting Mumsnet? Yeah. And you know why I'm quoting Mumsnet? Because that's a bunch of um, really incisive women who know their own views, who are not afraid to share their views. And when you looked at their, the survey that they did uh, mid-pandemic about women and work, really, really stark statistics about women who had been forced to go on furlough because they had no childcare opportunities, who, had, who felt so bleak about their future employment opportunities. And I'm conscious that the same is true across a whole range of occupations um, and socioeconomic groups and regions of the country and different ethnicities. And, and that's the stark reality is that there's a common, a common thread and, and it's a phenomenal resource. And I always love it when people just sort of send me an email, you know, either dropping a statistic into my head or giving me a piece of evidence that really resonates. Um, and so thank you for that offer. And I always say to people, you know, I'm, uh, and I said it right at the beginning of this interview, I'm relentless at answering my emails. I read all of my emails myself. There's no filter. And, you know, it's amazing that the, the stories that will end up in my head and uh, eventually be trotted out on the floor of the House of Commons. Because I'm like, oh, no, someone told me. Uh, and I can be frantically scroll- scrolling through my emails going, where did, oh, yeah, there it is. Um, and, I, and I think that's the most powerful thing to do. It's very difficult for a government minister who is telling you that everything is rosy and everything's under control. And there are no problems when you hit them with the evidence. Well, actually, Dr. Fitzpatrick, who is my constituent and a retired GP of only six months, has found it impossible to re-register to go and be a vaccinator. You can't argue with it. She couldn't re-register and was given the opportunity to go and volunteer as a car park attendant at one of the vaccination centres. I go, she's a, she's a GP with sort of 30 years experience, um, more than 30 years experience. And you just say, so actually anecdote, individual stories, uh, evidence like that is um, 
phenomenally powerful. What is coming up next for you in your parliamentary roles, but also beyond if you want to share? Um, and what are you looking forward to? So I think that's a really interesting question. It's the one question that my daughter keeps asking me, what are you doing next? Um, and for me, so my, my parliamentary career had a, a really um, interesting trajectory. Uh, so I spent six years on the backbenches. And then when Theresa May became prime minister, uh, she promoted me very quickly. So I had a, a junior job at the Department for Work and Pensions for a year, then six months in the cabinet office, and then 18 months uh, in the cabinet uh, as Minister for Immigration. And my services were dispensed with by the current prime minister. But, you know, I found myself a new role as chair of the Women and Equality Select Committee, which I love. Um, and, and I can honestly say that I've never looked for those promotions. They happened to me and I very much appreciated and enjoyed them uh, and found them incredibly rewarding. I find this role phenomenally interesting and rewarding. I absolutely love it, but I don't know how long I'll do it for. And a select committee chair can only do a maximum of two terms. And so, you know, I shall do this term. Um, and then I think I have to decide what the future holds, really. Um, and I, I can honestly say at the current time, I don't know. Uh, but I think what the, the select committee will be looking at going forward, we're doing uh, an inquiry into the work of the government equalities office, which is very it's a very techie, very machinery of government, not particularly headline grabbing, I don't think, uh, but important. And we want to understand how equalities is embedded across government and how the GEO is making sure that every single department is considering its equalities responsibilities. And looking at things like the public sector equality duty, which I fear has become this horrendous box ticking exercise and equality impacts assessments, which I often feel there's lip service being paid to and the government isn't really considering them properly. So uh, that's quite an important inquiry. The body image inquiry will, uh, will report shortly. Uh, and so I'm quite excited about that. It, it's very important and it's about the mental health of particularly young people, but goes wider than that. Um, and I think there's a real danger that people will see it as trivial, but actually we know that we have growing levels of uh, mental health uh, health issues in young people the pandemic has exacerbated that uh, and so I'm looking forward to the publication of that um, and we're doing a massive inquiry at the moment into the Gender Recognition Act and that's incredibly controversial very difficult uh, and there are extremely passionate views on both sides of the argument and I think my role as chair is to try and take some of the heat out of the argument that's phenomenally difficult to do I don't you know I don't take that on lightly, but I think it is important. And I always uh, say to both sides who can be quite ferocious in their views, look, can we make this about people and about us being kinder to people? And I think, you know, during the course of the pandemic, um, we've all become incredibly unpleasant on social media. And I don't actually, that's nothing to do with the pandemic. As years pass, people have become increasingly aggressive and um, unpleasant on social media. And you certainly see the whole cancel culture and the, to be quite frank, the, the poisonous arguments that now occur. Um, and so, and I always say to people, you wouldn't say that to my face. And I'm always struck, you know, the people who are the most abusive to me online are perfectly polite, decent people in real life. And uh, I just hope that the online harms bill that's coming forward finds some way to tackle that, anonymity on the internet that allows people to be just offensive and I always say that you know it costs you nothing to be polite does it disagree with me disagree with everything I stand for 
take apart my arguments. I'm perfectly happy for you to do that. But you've just undermined it by calling me fat and ugly. Um. But, but interestingly, if you look at platforms like LinkedIn, you'll still sometimes, even though it's people's actual names and their profiles, you'll still sometimes not, not get abusive abusive but you're some of the some of the tone of some of the stuff that people are saying on there and it just amazes me because it's like everybody can see who you are and yeah you and feel it's appropriate you to, yeah but yet you still feel it's appropriate to to talk this person down in in the way that you're doing so i think um i think tone in a few short characters in an email online is very hard to get right uh, and I always tell people this, that when I was immigration minister, there wasn't a single word came out of my mouth that I hadn't really, really thought about. But it wasn't just about the words that I was using. It was about the tone that I said them in. Now, predominantly, that would be in the chamber of the House of Commons um, and or in an interview. And, you, you know, you had you had the time you, ha- you had a platform where you were conscious that what you were going to say and how you were going to say it was going to be scrutinised to the nth degree. Now, I sometimes think that people sat in the privacy of their own office, kitchen, bedroom, wherever, thumping 140 characters out on the internet. They forget that. They forget that, you know, would I have said that to someone's face? Uh, You put an exclamation mark instead of a full stop and it completely changes the nuance. And how will people interpret that? And, you know, I've got embroiled in some phenomenal rows with people by text message. And you sort of go, if we were doing this face to face, this, this would be said in a kind way. You know, I'd be trying to help someone with this instead of it just feels like a relentless attack. And I think, you know, I, I, I'm some of the hardest things to do and the easiest things to say is step back from the internet um, and just think about what you are saying and what you're doing. But it's, um, it's a horrible space, it really is a horrible space at the moment. Yeah, but what we're always trying to do is have constructive conversations with people and try and remember that kindness and try and discuss things but discuss them in a positive way and share views so uh, hopefully hopefully we can help spread that ethos around yeah we need and we need some of that positivity and it's actually it's something that I think it's good for all of us to sit back and remember from time to time you know you get criticized something but do it positively find the nice thing that you can say about whatever it is and say well actually no, I like that element of it. That element could really work. This bit, are you sure? Um, and, it, you know, I, it's, it's really tough to do. And certainly, I, um, when we're taking evidence from witnesses on the select committee, I find as chair, you have to be completely neutral. I got in so much trouble a few weeks ago for referring to one witness's professor blogs and another witness by their first name. And it was interpreted as me not showing respect to the person I had called by their first name. So, uh, in fact, it completely twisted the whole thing on its head because actually the person who I had called by their first name, I was much more relaxed with, much more familiar. Um, and I now have to make a point in select committees to asking every witness, how would you like me to refer to you? Can I call you by your first name? I'm, always, I'm terribly informal, so I would always much rather call witnesses by their first name. Um, and it was purely and simply, you know, I just had a, an aberration where I referred to somebody as professor, whatever their name was. And this was completely interpreted as, oh, well, you know, she's called the man professor, therefore. I'm like, no, maybe I had just forgotten his first name. Uh, could always be that. Um, but anyway, so I, you know, I, so I always say that, try and find something positive, try and find something constructive. And I always say, you know, in Parliament, I spend a lot of time 
working with people who politically I might disagree with absolutely vehemently. So I make them a bad person. Doesn't mean that I can't work with them to achieve whatever objective, whatever common goal we might have. And, uh, and I always say, um, you know, someone like Jess Phillips, who can be phenomenally outspoken, sometimes pretty blunt. And she always says, if she doesn't care who she works with, if she gets what she wants achieved, achieved, then, uh, then she'll work with anyone to do that. And I think she's absolutely right in that. I can find myself uh, with some very, very strange parliamentary allies. And you think, actually, at the end of the day, we both agree on X. We think it needs to be done. So I'll work with whoever. And that, my goodness, that can cause some upset uh, with people who say, well, you, you praise the Labour MP. I, yeah, because they worked really hard um, and they had come up with a really great idea and a solution. And, you know, that's the business we're in, finding solutions. Well, I think that seems like a good point to finish on. So thank you so much for uh, talking with us today, Caroline Noakes. Thank you so much. Hello, my name is Inus Santos. I am the associate editor for Womanology, and here I am to tell you all about our new issue, which is all about celebrating this year's International Women's Day. The stories include Nabila Tejpa, one of the few female rally drivers who is also of Asian descent, tells us how she refused to give up on her dream despite being told she couldn't be a rally driver. Nabila also lets us know how the rally racing world is coping with the COVID-19 pandemic. Don Bonfield MBE, Royal Society Entrepreneur in Residence at King's College London talks about the new UNESCO Engineering Report where she's contributed to as the author of the Diversity and Inclusion chapter. Don also reminds us that talent comes from all backgrounds. Also, Moira Cameron, Yeoman Warder at the Tower of London, shares how lockdown life has been like living as part of the community at the Tower. She explains how people are an essential part of the Tower. Emma Tumplin, Collaboration Manager for Twara Tech, talks about campaigning on behalf of women in Wales and the importance of International Women's Day. Emma focuses on the importance of three key programs, Purple Plaques, Lead Hership and Step to Non-Exec. You can also read about Naomi Timpeli, digital champion, who talks about the progress of Freelance Her 100, the fully funded community-driven program to kickstart the creative digital tech and media careers of 100 women impacted by COVID-19. Welder at Alpha Manufacturing, Chloe Sales, lets us in on her story of finding her passion as a welder after starting her career as a hairdresser. Do check out our website www.womanfology.co.uk to read the full stories. And that is all from me.
sadly, that's all we have time for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, if you want to support what we do, then share the link for the show on social media and also subscribe. Your feedback is really important, so please do rate and review the show in your podcast app. That's all for now, but join us in the next episode, which is about women of history. For now, take care and stay safe.